Good morning. Today's scripture comes from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 45. can be found on your Black Chair Bibles uh, on page 887. Hear the word of the Lord. As he passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them <clears throat> excuse me, as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest, and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. 
Keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1. I'm really excited about this uh, series in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, my prayer and my desire is that we would grow in our affection for Jesus and grow in our discipleship as we walk through this gospel slowly. In fact, I want to pray briefly before we jump in. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I pray the words of my mouth, I pray the meditations of all of our hearts together this morning would glorify you, would honor you, would be pleasing in your sight. Father, I pray that you would grow our affection and awe of King Jesus as we work through this passage. Deepen our desire to be faithful disciples of Jesus as we walk through this passage. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been following the news, you know that eight days ago, King Charles III, or Charles III, was formally coronated as king over England. Well, we saw last week that 2,000 years ago at Jesus' baptism, he was publicly proclaimed over his uh, earthly kingdom as king. And that was his coronation moment when his heavenly father declared This Jesus is my beloved son. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the promised king. He's the servant from Isaiah. And last week, we saw just how spectacular that moment was. Well, friends, there's a difference between claiming authority and exercising authority, right? You can have a title, but that doesn't guarantee that you'll wield that authority for the good. My kids claim authority over each other all the time. But do they bring peace and good to the situation? Not really. I guess one of my kids is over there. Some of you do. Last week, we saw lots of folks claiming that Jesus was God's kingly son. Well, in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus exercising, starting to exercise his royal authority. In other words, it's not merely a claim. And we get to see this morning how different people respond to Jesus' royal authority. So the question before us this morning is what happens when our lives encounter the tangible kingly authority of Jesus? Will we resist him? Will we keep Jesus at a distance because of his authority? Or will we welcome his authority and submit to his authority and embrace his authority? You'll see the main point of this passage and sermon on the screen When Jesus exercises kingly authority, people's lives are turned upside down. I'll say it again. When Jesus acts like a king, everything around him is turned upside down. So what kind of king is Jesus? Let me point out four aspects of Jesus' kingship. Here's the first. Jesus is the disciple-making king. Jesus is the disciple-making king as we look at verses 16 through 20. Now, the story picks up in Capernaum. We're going to see that later. Uh, And Capernaum was one of the 16 kind of bustling ports on the Sea of Galilee. And you've got two sets of brothers. Notice Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and then James and John. And they were separately involved in the major fishing industry, which was along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And and notice Jesus approaches the first pair in the middle of their workday. I want you to picture these simple men, young men, probably throwing out their nets, and it was likely a hot day. They're sweating. They're hoping to pull in a nice haul, and that's important because meals and supplies for the rest of the week would depend on this. And so they're leaning into their task. 
much like many of us do Monday through Friday, week in and week out. And then notice Jesus shows up. He's standing there near the coast, and he says just two words, really simple, follow me. Now, no one says this to us, right? I mean, have you ever encountered someone at your office coming up to you and saying, hey, I see you at your seat. I want you to stop what you're doing and come follow me. That would be a very strange command. Well, this was not a normal scene either. But the strangest part is these grown men with their jobs and families, they actually do it, right? Now, rabbis of the day, rabbis of the first century in the Jewish world had followers, but they wouldn't initiate who would come and be their students. So the students would seek out the master. There would be some kind of religious testing, and the rabbis were, of course, looking for the best, the brightest. And the rabbis weren't interested in teaching um, other things except for the Torah. But here, notice, Jesus' interests are different. He doesn't just initiate a conversation. He's not just kind of saying, hey, would you guys consider coming and following me? I want you to notice here, he commands them. He's more like a prophet than a teacher. But he's even more than a prophet because prophets, what would they do? They would call people to follow God. Jesus had the audacity to call people to follow him. So Jesus is exercising his royal authority, and he does that by calling subjects into his kingdom. The emphasis here in this little section is not how these four men responded. Sometimes we focus on that. What does it mean to follow Jesus and so forth? That's an important question. The emphasis here is actually on how Jesus commands and calls these men to follow him. He says, follow me, and they follow him. Such a simple formula, isn't it? I think it shows the reader the sheer power of the creator at work. In the creation narrative, God said, let there be light. And there was light, right? It was a word of command. It was not an appeal. We're reminded here, becoming a disciple of Jesus is more of a gift than an achievement. When the creator calls, creation obeys. So Jesus is gathering an army of vassals. And and who does he go to first? Well, notice it's these middle-class blue-collar guys, right? Why not go after the religious elite? Why not go after the uh, those who are politically, you know, influential and, and powerful political figures? Wouldn't that be more strategic? But friends, Jesus isn't interested in starting a political revolution. He's not interested in those who may have PhDs in the Bible. He's interested in those who will be humble and those who he will who will follow him he wants to gather vassals gather subjects who he can love and train and then deploy and while these men are unique someday they're going to be apostles they're going to be the pillars of the church we know Jesus's conditions are very similar for us as well right so friends it's okay that you are not all put together It's okay that you don't know how to perfectly exegete a passage of Scripture or even know what that word means. It's okay that you didn't grow up in the church. It's okay that you don't know the lingo of Christians or don't, you know, kind of feel out of your element as you're here in church. Jesus is interested in one thing. Will you follow him? Will you follow him humbly? Will you leave all and follow him? We can see this was a big ask, of course, by the way that they responded. They left their nets, so they left their jobs, their livelihood. They left their families. You notice Daddy Zebedee is just standing there 
his jaws probably on the ground, right? He's watching his two boys leave. Is there anything in life that challenges our ability to follow Jesus more than our careers and families? There's a cost to following Jesus, right? And these men, they were summoned by Jesus. They left all, but did they know what this would cost them? Attaching themselves to Jesus, following him, imitating him, walking with him, being shaped by him for those three years, that would invite trouble into their lives. But then after Jesus uh, left them and left them with the Holy Spirit as they became apostles, they embraced a life of persecution and pain and trouble, right? But then as we fast forward to the end of their lives, what happened? Well, Peter would be crucified upside down. Andrew, his brother, was crucified in Greece. James was beheaded in Jerusalem and John exiled in Patmos. They didn't know this when they left everything to follow Jesus. But friends, they knew who to put first. We don't have a guarantee of a pain-free life if we follow Jesus Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. So we are called to embrace the cruciform life in our discipleship of Jesus as we're following after him. But friends, we know a crown is coming. We know our eternal future, which makes the cross that we carry worth it, right? And even though James and John lost their family, lost their job, Jesus would give them a new family and a new job, right? He would call them to be fishers of men. And they would be shaped by Jesus into these great apostles of the church. They would preach the gospel. They would baptize converts and collect those converts into churches which they planted. And they would establish elders to lead those churches. They were breaking new spiritual ground in parts of the Roman Empire. And so we can say, by way of analogy, as we consider the Great Commission, as we consider the rest of the New Testament teaching, we can say, too, we are called to make disciples, right? We've got a new family as well. We've got a new job as well. Following Jesus involves helping other people follow Jesus. I like what Mark Dever has to say about this. He says, if you say you are following Jesus, but you're not helping others to know and follow Jesus, then I don't know what you mean when you say, I follow Jesus. And I think he's right. Now, there's people in this room that have been walking with Jesus for a long time. And I wonder whether you kind of evaluate the maturity of your faith and walk with Jesus according to not only what you know and how you're obeying, which is so important and foundational, but do you evaluate your own discipleship also according to who you're helping and how you're helping others grow as disciples of Jesus? Can you think of one person right now that you're helping to follow Jesus? Maybe you're, you're telling me, hey, Godwin, I, I don't know how to do that. I, I would like to do that. I see that in the scriptures. I'm, I'm called as a member of a church to help other Christians, members here at Faith Church, to follow Jesus. How do I do that? Well, let me encourage you to ask a pastor or ask a friend, phone a friend, right? And we'd love to talk to you about this. We'd love to equip you and help you and give you some resources. How do I help someone else follow Jesus? So Jesus is a disciple-making king. That's the first thing we see here in this first little vignette. Next, we see that Jesus is the miracle-working king. So we look at verses 21 through 34. Notice Jesus is still in Capernaum. In fact, Capernaum was kind of his home base. And he begins his ministry by teaching in the synagogue. These synagogues were scattered all over the region, all over the, the, the region that Jews were in. And Jews would gather in these local synagogues on their holy day, which was Saturday. And what would they do in these synagogues? Well, it's a lot like what we do today, in fact. There's prayers, there's songs. Someone would read a portion of the Old Testament, and then someone would explain it. 
And so on this particular day, the, the synagogue leader probably asked Jesus to speak after the reading. And we don't know what he said. It'd be nice to know exactly what he said here. But you do see the crowd's response, right? Look at verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. I mean, these folks have been going to church, going to synagogue, probably for a long time, probably have heard hundreds of sermons, maybe thousands of sermons. But on this day, they walked away thinking, okay, that was different. He spoke with unusual power, riveting insights. And that was nothing like how the scribes do it. Now, what does that mean? Well, the scribes were experts in the law, uh, and their interpretations existed in kind of this oral tradition. It kind of served as a second law, which Jesus was not pleased with. We'll see that in Mark chapter 7. And so these scribes often taught by quoting other rabbis in kind of this rapid-fire kind of way. Well, Hillel says, blah, 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 blah. And Gamaliel says, blah, 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 blah. But Eliezer says, blah, 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 <laughs> right? So they spoke with this kind of derivative authority. Now, imagine the shock when Jesus comes on the scene and he speaks with direct authority. Do you remember his famous phrase? Truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus did not quote authorities. He was the authority. And yet I want you to notice, and this is true all the way through our chapter here, the amazement, the astonishment of the crowd fell short of faith, right? They were stunned by Jesus but you see no indication of faith and repentance. So what happens next? Well, look at verse 23. Have you ever been, at a, uh, been to a church service where someone loudly disrupts things? Just kind of yells and, you know, right in the middle of the sermon or maybe at a different time. It creates this kind of confusing and, and sometimes even caustic in, environment, right? Well, that's what this demon-possessed man was doing. He was doing something similar. He says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? Now, you can imagine all the thoughts racing through uh, the, the congregation's heads, like, okay, what's he going to do now? How's Jesus going to handle this, right? And then the demon-possessed man, he kept going. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons believe, don't they? <laughs> but there's a difference between knowing Jesus is king and submitting to Jesus as king. You can sense in this little story the terror that grips this demon. It, it seems to know that the presence of Jesus marks the end of the road for him. Jesus was invading his territory, right? The coming of King Jesus, the coming of Jesus' kingdom meant the destruction and end of the kingdom of darkness. And so this demon was basically saying, why are you bringing this conflict to us? Now notice the plural in verse 24 kind of suggests that this demon has a recognition that Jesus was coming against the whole cast of demons, right? King Jesus is waging war against the whole demonic realm, and he's showing his authority, his kingship over the whole demonic realm. Notice Jesus's response to this demon. In verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the scene is so intense, right? We're just kind of like, okay, what's going to happen next? And, and we can almost picture this. The man, he shakes visibly, and with this ear-piercing shriek, the demon leaves him. Just a stunning scene, right? Stunning. This demon was absolutely powerless before the command of his creator. 
Be silent. Those are the same words, by the way, that he uses to still the storm later in Mark's gospel. Jesus says, follow me, and they leave everything and come. He says, be silent, and the demons evacuate the territory that Jesus owns. He says, be still, and the winds and the waves obey him. Friends, who has the authority to say such things? Only one. Look at how people responded to this Jesus. Look at verse 27. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey. What is this? Have you ever encountered someone or something that kind of blew up your categories of understanding? Just this past week, I was in the car driving to school, having a conversation with my five-year-old, Josh. And Josh says to me, what happens if the sky falls? I'm like, okay. Started to unpack that a little bit, asking him some questions like, what do you mean, Josh? Well, he kind of thought that the sky is like a ceiling. And, and it's, you know, it's physical, and it could, like, break apart and fall on all of us, right? So I had to explain, well, it's not a ceiling, and you can kind of go through it and so forth. And his eyes got so big. A new category of understanding for little Josh, right, which, which produced for him utter astonishment. Well, that's what was happening, friends, in Capernaum. What is this? Who is this? No category except divine could explain what Jesus does and says here. Never, never had these folks seen the power of God demonstrated so clearly. And yet, as I mentioned before, the tragedy of this moment, the tragedy here is that they saw Jesus do mighty works and they remained spiritually unchanged, right? But friends, we, we don't need to be in that category. We need not remain spiritually unchanged. And so friends, how do you deal with the reality of the demonic realm and the presence of evil in your life. And we're in the midst of a spiritual war, aren't we? Our enemies aren't flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of evil. As Christians, we would affirm demons cannot possess us in the same way that this man was possessed, but the enemy can certainly oppress us. Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion ready to devour Christians, right? And so that might look like a number of ways, you know, different ways that could express itself. Maybe it's a mental assault where there's lies in your head that you're battling. Maybe it's a particularly evil dream that you're having over and over again. Maybe it's the uncanny and kind of painful circumstances that seems more than just kind of, oh, bad stuff's happening in my life. A pointed attack, a strategic attack in your life to devour you and destroy your faith. Friends, do you trust do you trust the one who has authority over demons and evil? I want you to put your eyes on verse 34. Look at this interesting verse. It's almost like this little throwaway verse, but there's so much loaded up into these verses. Jesus would not even permit this demon to speak. So Jesus has control over what every demon says and by implication does, right? This reminds me of Job's interaction with God. I'm sorry, Satan's interaction with God over Job. Satan says, hey, can I sift your servant? Can I cause him suffering? And God extends the leash and says, okay. Right? Satan is always on a leash. Friends, when evil strikes, Jesus permits it to happen. It comes to us through his hands, which should encourage us, right? It comes to us through his hands. 
Well, friends, the same day they head back to Simon Peter's abode, look at verses 29 and following, and, and crazy stuff continues to happen. This time it's, it's Peter's mother-in-law, and she's got a fever. Well, why is fever such a big deal in the first century? I mean, we just pop an ibuprofen, we're good to go, right? Well, we got to remember that in the first century, folks didn't have access to our medicines, and so actually fevers could be deadly. They could kill. So she was sick. She was debilitated. Her life had become useless. She's on her back. She may even die soon. And so what Jesus does here is not only just kind of heal her body, but restores her to what she was meant to be. Notice she immediately stands up and serves. What a picture, right? And this is all happening, by the way, during the day and time. So this is day one of Jesus's ministry. And what does he do? Well, he goes to church in the morning and he casts out a demon and he preaches with authority. He goes to Peter's house for lunch and, you know, he heals his mother-in-law. But notice within hours, the word spread, as you would imagine. And by nighttime, notice, everyone is at the door of Peter. And notice how Jesus responds to this, right? I mean, it's just, it's absolutely astounding how he responds. He, he's lavish with his generosity. He heals many. He casts out many demons. So friends, what kind of king's Jesus, well, I just want you to see it with your own eyes. He's a good king, isn't he? He's a kind king. He did not need to heal the people he healed, but he did. He brings life and health to places of death and disorder, right? He's a miracle-working king. He gives us these teaser trailers of his future kingdom, a kingdom that is has no more diseases and no more death and no more demons. And he gives us these little pictures, these little miracles, a little morsel taste that makes us groan for the full meal ahead. As we experience these kingdom miracles in our life, you know what the first miracle is? It's the miracle of your new birth. So we reflect upon that. Wow, look at what God has done. He started the new creation in my life. And then as he starts to grow us up into holiness and so forth, we see these little miracles of spiritual growth. I used to be angry, but now I'm a person of peace. How did that happen? The Spirit of God is, is growing up that new creation in you. And so we see these little miracles. And sometimes they're, they're miracles of healing as God chooses in his timing and by his will to heal someone. And we're like, whoa, what a picture of the kingdom to come. So Jesus is the disciple-making king. He's the miracle-working king. But we'll notice in verses 35 through 38, he is the preaching king. He's the preaching king. Now, this is the next morning. Notice it says very early in the morning. So, I mean, this guy, Jesus must have slept well. I mean, he had an exhausting first day of ministry, right? So much was going on. Uh, and so, humanly speaking, it must have been exhausting. But notice, he gets up early. So, it's dark outside probably. There's no one awake. Peter's house is probably still. All of his buddies, all of the disciples are kind of huddled together under blankets and so forth. But Jesus has something vital to do. Have you ever wanted to spend time with someone and didn't want anything to get in the way? You know, whatever it takes him to be with this person. Well, Jesus wanted to get alone notice with the Father, with his heavenly Father. You know, you don't slip away like this to do something you don't like. You don't slip away to take out the trash or eat some kale or, you know, do your taxes or something, right? You slip away from the hustle and bustle and pressure to do something important, to do something that restores you and strengthens you. Friends, prayer was foundational 
for Jesus' ministry. Even in his perfect humanity, he connected with his father regularly, alone, oftentimes in the wilderness. He was getting away from the humdrum. So friends, how much more should we, right? How much more should we in our humanity and with our weakness and with our sin? Before we step into our days, will we find some time to slip away, slip away with our Heavenly Father? Perhaps there's a pattern here for us to imitate. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century American Puritan. He pastored during the First Great Awakening in New England. Many consider him to be the greatest American theologian in history. While most folks don't realize that Edwards wrote over 70 books, he had 12 kids, five chickens, three dogs, two churches, one wife, and a partridge in a pear tree. How did he, how did Jonathan Edwards survive all the pressures of life? Well, biographers believe that the key to his endurance wasn't grit or gifting or gumption. It was 4 a.m. prayer every day, wake up at 4 a.m. to commune with his father. When I was young and fairly stupid, when Janie and I had zero kids, but we were dreaming about our lives ahead and pastoring, to, you know, being in a church together and serving and having kids. I told her, hey, let's be like Jonathan and Sarah Edwards and have like 12 kids. To which she promptly responded, if you'll be like Jonathan Edwards, I'll have 12 kids. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a moment of humor, but I think she knew something. I mean, there, there's something true underneath that humor too, right? She knew that my communion with the Lord was likely not in the place to sustain life with 12 kids. And she was right. What we see here, friends, is that Jesus, as he's praying, as he's committing to prayer, what we're learning is that it's not an optional extra. It's absolutely essential, isn't it? So he's praying. And notice, in rolls the disciples. How little they understood what he was doing. The disciples were caught up in the unprecedented results of his miracles, of his healings. I mean, his poll numbers in Capernaum were really high, and so they thought, hey, we got to take advantage of this moment, right? You got to stay in Capernaum. Let's build up your reputation here. But for Jesus, communing with the Father, notice, is a priority. We see him do this. We see the Gospel of Mark punctuated with times when Jesus gets away to pray. But there was something else that was also a priority. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is an important sentence, this next one. This is why I have come. It's a massive statement, isn't it? When we think about all the healings and miracles and all the, the good that Jesus did and all the ways that he loved people, and we want to emphasize that and affirm that, we see that even in our chapter here. And yet Jesus says more than miracles and healings, the reason he came was to preach. Friends, if the point of Jesus' ministry was healing and miracles, then we've got to know why didn't he heal everybody, right? But if the point of his ministry is to preach, to announce the reign of God for sinners, well, then all of a sudden the miracles make a little bit more sense. The healings, the miracles, they show the people who Jesus is. So people would listen to him more easily, right? The miracles authenticated the messenger and his message. The central, the, the central part of his ministry was to preach. Now, why is that? 
Why is preaching, and Jesus is preaching in particular, so central? Well, it's because the bigger need is spiritual and not physical. You know, Jews got this confused. They thought, well, hey, you know, the Messiah is going to come and establish this kind of physical earthly kingdom and, and kind of overthrow the Romans, and here we go, right? And sometimes we can be tempted in the same way. We often get fixated on the physical side of things, don't we? If God would just take over our government, if God could just kind of solve the hunger problem or fix our homelessness issue, whether it's justice issues or ethical issues, by the way, these are all things worthy of consideration, but I just want you to see here, Jesus is most concerned about mending souls, right? He wants to forgive our sins. He wants to help us walk with God, and that sort of healing will only come through his preaching. Jesus' preaching means, of course, Jesus' words, right? And this shouldn't surprise us. Consider, again, Genesis chapter 1. If, by the way, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 is so foundational for the rest of the Bible. Well, think about Genesis chapter 1. God uses words to make the first creation, right? Well, I want you to see here, Jesus is using words to make a new creation, when we open our Bibles, when we rightly understand God's word or listen to a faithful sermon, we are hearing from King Jesus. He is exercising his authority in our lives. And it's not just the red letters in your Bible. It's all of Scripture that Jesus speaks through. And so we have to get ourselves in front of God's word. This is not just about personal Bible reading, by the way, and that's important, that's good, that's healthy. But why do we gather on Sunday mornings? We gather to sit under King Jesus' words as different pastors and elders preach it to us, right? Why do we dedicate space to discussing the sermon during our community group times? We believe in the centrality of the preached word. If you're wondering to yourselves, you know, and you've had a rough week, maybe it's been a rough few months, and, and you're wondering to yourselves, why am I not changing? Why do I feel stuck? Why am I kind of slipping away? Why does God feel distant? Well, friends, are you humbly and eagerly sitting under the words of King Jesus as it's proclaimed here on Sunday morning and then proclaimed each time you open up your Bibles and rightly understand it? Friends, this is how King Jesus regularly exercises his authority in our lives. And so is your heart soft towards this book? Are you eager to hear from your king as he speaks? Some questions to consider. Jesus is the disciple-making king, the miracle-working king, the preaching king, and finally, he is the compassionate king. Look at verses 39 through 45. Jesus now is expanding his ministry beyond just Capernaum, now the entire kind of Galilean region. That's where he's going to, and he's, he's preaching in this region. He's doing miracles in this region. And, and notice very quickly, he encounters a man with leprosy. Verse 40 says, Then a man with leprosy came to mind and uh, came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. So leprosy, you probably have heard of leprosy before. It's a chronic disease. In Leviticus 13, we read that a leper is ceremonially unclean. A leprous person would have to wear to torn clothes and, and cover their upper lip and stand at a particular distance and then cry out whenever he'd come around the corner, unclean, unclean. So he was kind of this social outcast, financially isolated, dependent on charity. He was essentially the walking dead. 
Nobody dared touch a leper for they were both physically contagious but also ritually contagious. You would become unclean if you touched someone that was unclean. But I want you to notice how this man comes to Jesus. He's not supposed to do what he did, right? He's not supposed to come within a certain distance from Jesus. He's supposed to cry out unclean, but he doesn't do any of that. He comes to Jesus, he drops down on his knees, and he's showing, he's expressing genuine faith in probably the only man he knows who can actually do something with his leprosy. You can imagine just how utterly broken this man has felt all his life. And with this sort of humble desperation, falling to his knees, take note of his request. It's not just for healing, but cleanliness. He didn't just want the physical disease removed. He wanted to be clean so he could be restored to the city that he lived in, to his family, and so forth. This is, this is a touching scene, isn't it? Now, I want you to notice how Jesus responds. Look at verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Friends, King Jesus has a big heart. He's got all authority, all the authority in the world. And I just want you to notice he's moved by pity. What does he do? I've already talked about this a little bit, but there's the power of his words, which issues forth and change often, but he doesn't only use words here. He touches this man. And you just have to wonder, right? When was the last time this man was touched? Touch is such a powerful human action, isn't it? In today's culture, touch has been so sensitized by sexuality and aggression. Sometimes we forget that it has a power and a place within human relationships. Jesus' touch became such a distinguishing mark in his ministry. I mean, think about it. How many people did Jesus touch to heal them? How many children did Jesus touch to bless them? Hundreds, thousands. It's remarkable. But what's remarkable isn't the fact that he touched common people. What's remarkable was that he especially touched people who had almost no status in the first century. So he touched foreigners and women and children and the unclean. Because in the first century, touch was only given to those who deserved affection and deserved approval. So why bother touching a second-class citizen, someone who's unworthy? But Jesus, Jesus chooses to touch. He chooses to dignify the undignified. We do need to understand something else. The Old Testament law teaches that. I mentioned this before. Uncleanness is kind of spread by touch, right? So any clean thing, any clean person who touches a corpse or touches a leper would become immediately defiled and unclean and would have to go through this kind of ritual cleansing to become clean again. But Jesus touches this leper. He purifies while remaining clean himself. The uncleanness doesn't dirty Jesus. What is unclean becomes clean. That's not how things work. I mean, if you got mud on your hands and you run around and you put your hands on someone else that's clean, both of you is going to be dirty, right? That's kind of what the Old Testament law, that's kind of what it expresses. But friends, everything changes with Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't just manage uncleanness. He removes it. Jesus' cleanness makes others clean. Friends, when King Jesus touches people, they change and he stays the same. They get better and he doesn't get worse. Maybe there's some here today who feel like an outcast. Maybe you feel like on the outside of the camp, the cool kids camp. (laughs) 
Maybe you've been disappointed with the things you've done or said. And so maybe you have this strong sense of shame or guilt. You've let people down. Sometimes you even wonder, what's wrong with me? Why am I so toxic? You need to know that Jesus, you need to know that Jesus is not afraid to touch you. You need to know that Jesus is not afraid to bless you, to make you clean, to forgive your sins. Friends, we have a divine king in Jesus who isn't put off by our filth. That doesn't mean he's not going to change you. That doesn't mean he's not going to take care of this sin that's caused this great rift between you and a holy God. But he won't turn you away if you come to him just like this leper, humble, expressing genuine faith. So be encouraged. Be encouraged this morning. Friends, what kind of king is Jesus? I mean, just look at this. Look at his big, compassionate heart for sinners and sufferers and outcasts. It's amazing, right? So so what about us? How will we respond to the good authority of Jesus? Remember a time when Jenny and I were late to uh, the Nutcracker performance in downtown Boston. And so we're driving on the road. We're in standstill traffic. We're frustrated. We're going to be late for the show. And all of a sudden, this ambulance comes by. Zooms through. The cars part. What do we decide to do? A line of cars. We jump in. And we sail to downtown Boston, you know, driving for miles quickly, speedily. And we get there in time for the show. And I know the illustration falls apart a little bit because that might be illegal. However, this is kind of like following Jesus. <laughs> now think about this with me. Jesus, Jesus puts himself into the world and everything around him has to adjust, right? Jesus creates a wide wake as he passes through, and nothing, no one stays the same. Everything around him must negotiate and conform when he comes through. In fact, he's not negotiating and conforming to anything else. He's just coming through. The crowds say, we haven't heard or seen anything like this. The demons beg him not to destroy them. People are healed and immediately stand up and serve. Lepers are cleansed and become quick evangelists. Jesus just utters a few words or touches, and the tectonic plates of our lives move. And yet Jesus is the unmoved mover, isn't he? He will make waves in your life. He will not leave you the same. And when he exercises his authority towards you, it will be for your good. It will benefit you. It will bless you. And so, friends, let me just encourage you, don't resist Jesus. Don't resist King Jesus. Get behind him. Get under him, follow him, and let him save you. Let him cleanse you. Let him change you. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now as we ponder this passage.